Blog Talk Radio.
Rafaomi Azikawe, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, uh, March the 5th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Well, I thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again uh, to yet another edition of our program. This program uh, features our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, We'll have dispatches on the demonstrations that have taken place in several African states supporting Russia in the Ukrainian crisis. Several African countries did not vote on the United Nations General Assembly resolution to condemn Moscow over the intervention into Ukraine. The Democratic People's Republic of Korea, the DPRK, has tested a satellite earlier in the week. And the African Regional Director of the World Health Organization, Dr. Masadiso Muete, says that the continent must enhance its public health apparatus as the pandemic appears to be subsiding. In the second hour, we look at the immediate coverage of the war in Ukraine and its impact on African people. Finally, we begin our programming uh, for Women's History Month. Uh, these and other features uh, will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program, uh, so stay tuned. We'll take a musical interlude, and we'll be back uh, with much more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, our worldwide uh, radio broadcast. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe, and uh, we just heard the music of Grand Matira uh, Makengo Makape and the Yamba Yamba Beto Ba, uh, music, uh, traditional music uh, from uh, Africa. And, uh, of course, uh, we're here today, uh, Saturday, uh, March 5th, 2022. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again uh, to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal. We'll move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. These are some of the headlines uh, from today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. And, uh, of course, uh, an article appeared uh, just two days ago in the New York Times uh, discussing uh, why or possibly why uh, the various countries and non-governmental organizations in Africa have been uh, expressing solidarity with Russia over the Ukrainian crisis. Now, at the United Nations on Wednesday, the New York Times reports, South Africa was among uh, 24 African countries that declined to join the resounding vote denouncing Russian aggression. Uh, 16 African countries abstained uh, from the vote. Seven uh, did not vote at all, and one, Eritrea in the Horn of Africa, voted against the resolution, keeping company uh, with uh, Russia, uh, Belarus, Syria, and the Democratic Republic of Korea. The striking tally reflected the ambiguous attitude across much of the continent, uh, where a handful of exceptions, uh, the Ukraine war has been greeted with conspicuous silence, a sharp contrast with uh, Western countries that are expanding sanctions, uh, seizing oligarch yachts, pressing for war crimes investigations, and even openly threatened to collapse the Russian economy. Now, according to uh, Lindaway uh, Zulu, uh, who is the Minister of Social Development in the Republic of South Africa, she said, quote, Russia is our friend through and through, unquote. Uh, she studied in uh, the Soviet Union uh, during the years of apartheid, uh, she also said that we are not about to denounce that relationship that we have always had, unquote. Uh, many African countries have a longstanding affinity with Russia, uh, stretching back to the Cold War. Some political and military leaders studied there, and trade links have grown. And in recent years, a growing number of countries have contracted with Russian mercenaries and bought ever greater quantities of Russian armaments. A few countries have condemned uh, Russia and Ukraine as an attack on international order. Uh, those two countries are Kenya and Ghana. Uh, some 25 nations voted for the UN resolution that denounced Mr. Putin's actions uh, just this last past Wednesday, but deep divisions in the continent's response were apparent from the start. The deputy leader of the Republic of Sudan flew into Moscow on the first day of the war, exchanged a warm handshake uh, with Russia's foreign minister, as warplanes uh, carried out their operations, as tanks uh, continued to advance uh, towards the various uh, municipalities in uh, Ukraine. Uh, Morocco, a longtime ally of the United States, offered a watery statement annoying American officials who nonetheless kept quiet. In Ethiopia, uh, Russian flags flew at a ceremony uh, just this last past Wednesday to commemorate a famous 19th century battle against Italian invaders recalling the involvement of Russian volunteers who sided with the Ethiopian uh, fighters. Uh, African sympathies for Ukraine were also diluted by reports of the Ukrainian border guards forcing 
African students to the back of lines as they attempted to leave the country, raising a furor over racism and discrimination. President Mohamedou Buhari of Nigeria, which has 4,000 students in, in, in Ukraine, decried uh, these reports. And you can read this article in its entirety over uh, the Pan-African News Wire. And uh, other developments uh, related uh, to uh, Africa's response to the Ukrainian uh, conflict. Uh, Africa was divided on Wednesday at the United Nations General Assembly, uh, which has adopted a resolution deploring Russia's invasion of Ukraine and calling for the immediate withdrawal of its forces. Eritrea was one of only five countries in the world that voted against it in the rare emergency session following more than two days of debate. Its UN mission said it respects each country's territorial integrity and sovereignty, but wanted windows for diplomacy to remain open. The country opposed all forms of unilateral sanctions as illegal and counterproductive. As Eritrea had been subject to such sanctions by the West for two decades, and they only hurt innocent people and undermined the road to peace, the 54-member African bloc accounted for 17 of the 35 countries that abstained uh, from uh, voting on the General Assembly resolution calling on Russia to immediately and completely unconditionally withdraw all of its military forces uh, from uh, what they described as unit- uh, Ukrainian territory. Um, these included the Central African Republic in Mali, where Russian uh, defense uh, consultants are helping the governments to fight uh, Islamist insurgencies, many of whom have ties uh, to the United States and other NATO countries. Uh, Uganda said it is an abstain to uphold its neutrality as the incoming chair of the Non-Aligned Movement, a form of 120 developing countries set up to stop their members from becoming pawns in Cold War power games. The UN ambassador to South Africa queried on Twitter why South Africa had abstained. Clayson Monyala, uh, South Africa's head of public diplomacy, accused the bloc of having double standards saying it should also condemn other aggressors in the Palestinian territories, Yemen, Syria, Libya, and Somalia. Eight countries, including two that have recently witnessed coups, Burkina Faso and Guinea, did not vote at all. Ethiopia, where a uh, counter-revolutionary attempt to overthrow the government beginning in November of 2020, which was backed by the United States, uh, and uh, also uh, these uh, struggles are involving a neighboring Eritrea, which uh, Ethiopia made peace with in 2018, uh, also did not vote. Uh, Eritrea did vote against the resolution. Ethiopia did not vote, period. Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed tweeted that his country was closely following events. He said that, quote, we urge all parties to exercise restraint in the Ukraine crisis, unquote. The Russian invasion or Russian intervention or Russian special military operations, as Moscow calls it, is still ongoing. A Cameroonian student in the Russian-captured city of Kurstan has said that he and his friends are terrified of going out, saying the southern Ukrainian port is now like a ghost town. The situation is not different in Ukraine, as African students in Ukraine seek cover in tunnels. And... Um, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and uh, this is the Pan-African Newswire segment. North Korea has fired uh, what could be a ballistic missile, um, according to the Japanese Coast Guard. They said this uh, earlier today. According to the Coast Guard, Japanese patrol ships received a relevant notification from the country's defense ministry. 
According to South Korea's Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea fired at least one unidentified missile towards the sea of Japan. Uh, this is the ninth missile launch uh, from the beginning of uh, this year, uh, 2022. And uh, finally, uh, according uh, to the Africa Director of the World Health Organization, uh, Dr. Mashadiso Mwete, um, the African continent uh, must enhance uh, its public health apparatus in light of the possibility uh, that the COVID-19 pandemic is subsided. Now, the World Health Organization Africa has stressed that countries should restore health care services to pre-pandemic levels. The global health body said that 40% of African countries were reporting disruptions to sexual, reproductive, maternal, newborn, child, and adolescent health services. The WHO Regional Director, Dr. Mashadiso Mwete, said uh, two years on, interruptions to essential health services due to the COVID-19 pandemic are still being broadly felt. The consequences of this uh, women's health are a serious cause for concern. One survey of 11 countries in Africa revealed that more than half saw a 16% increase in maternal deaths between February and 2020 compared to the same period in 2019. On the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, Moite said that coronavirus cases continued trending downwards in most uh, counties uh, following the fourth wave peak across the continent. And uh, there have now been uh, more than 11 million COVID-19 cases and almost 250,000 lives sadly lost in Africa due to the pandemic, uh, Dr. Moite said. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. Uh, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded uh, in January of 1998, and since then it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. And uh, if you'd like to uh, log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire uh, so you can stay abreast of uh, some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do is go to our website, and uh, that is at uh, uh, Pan-African News. Uh, That's com. And if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, this special uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, uh, all you need to do uh, is go uh, to uh, the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. These programs can be shared with other potential listeners, copying and pasting the links in the emails and sending those emails out. The uh, links can be copied and pasted on blogs and websites as well as shared through social media networks such as uh, Twitter and Facebook. This is Abayomi Azikawe. We'll take a break. Uh, we'll be back uh, with more of our program.
Welcome back, and uh, the voice of a legendary Phyllis Hyman, I Found Love. And uh, we're going to do an analysis uh, right now, uh, looking at uh, various uh, comments, uh, addresses, speeches, interviews 
uh, that were carried out uh, over the last uh, several days on the Russian uh, military special operations in Ukraine. Uh, we want to hear, first of all, uh, from a Russian uh, governmental spokeswoman uh, who, uh, in fact, um, spoke to the press uh, during the course of the early uh, days uh, of this uh, intervention. And, uh, of course, uh, the Western media outlets have all been uh, against Russia, uh, closing out uh, Russian voices, uh, even closing out voices opposed to uh, military intervention by NATO and the United States, uh, which is all the way up in its eyeballs in this conflict, uh, provoking uh, this uh, response uh, from the Russian Federation. Uh, let's listen uh, to this uh, exchange uh, between Sky News and um, the Russian uh, government uh, spokeswoman. Moving on. Do we have Sky News with us? Yes, you do. Thank you very much for taking my question. Russian's Defense Secretary has said that Vladimir Putin has gone full tonto, that is English slang for completely mad. Certainly that's the view of many people looking at this. He's launched an unprovoked attack on his southern neighbor that is killing a lot of Ukrainian cousins of Russia and Russian soldiers. What's your reaction to that description of his action? Well, you know, it's surprising that uh, such evaluations uh, are given by Minister, Defence Minister of the uh, UK regarding uh, authorities of a different state. I think he could have uh, thought up of uh, similar adjectives. Uh, Thinking of uh, British uh, Prime Minister, if we talk about personal uh, judgment, and if we talk about the operation and that uh, there are people dying, then yes, unfortunately, this is a huge tragedy that uh, there is a need to resort to such uh, methods. And this is exactly what was talked about during eight years, eight years of our policy, of our efforts, our work 24-7. That's what it took to demonstrate that the peaceful resolution of this high-tension conflict, which in 2015 was already a bloodbath and priority problem, that any other scenario other than dialogue is tragic in its nature and should be avoided. And could you please say how many years must it uh, have taken, must uh, have this bloodshed gone on in eastern Ukraine? Five, ten years? Why did you start counting victims only today or say yesterday? Who gave you the right? to ignore victims, especially that we were talking about thousands of them over all these years. Isn't your conscience tormenting you when you, Western journalists, speculating on Minsk agreements and Russia, never mentioned that in the Eastern Europe, uh, Eastern Ukraine, in Donetsk and Luhansk Republic, there are peaceful citizens losing lives every day. You never counted them, just like President Zelensky never considered them people. Who gave you the right to speak of the victims starting only today? 
if that's the way you create your reports, if that's your approach to it, you are not journalists and you're not people. 13,000 people, and I am not uh, dividing them, although in all honesty I would very much like to and uh, maybe should have in those who shot first, in those who were members of uh, Ukrainian military men or their regular army and nationalist battalions, which uh, then became part of uh, their armed forces. I do not divide them from civilians and from the people which you call militias, separatists, and which we say are self-defending. All in all, according to OSCE, 13,000 people died and OSCE had no opportunity to account for every victim. It's only their primary analysis. Where were you? Why didn't you ask these questions in Kiev? Why didn't you broadcast people in Donbass? Why did you give them no opportunity to attend international organizations' meetings or join in online? You have no conscience at all. Maybe you should first calculate the number of the people which died at the hands of the British authorities in Iraq. How many people died there on the orders of Downing Street? How many civilians died? And how many British military men died. Would you like to talk about Afghanistan? Because it's well time for that. So before you judge others, start with yourself. And if you talk about the situation in Ukraine and the actions of Russia in protecting peaceful citizens of Donbass, you shouldn't start counting with February 2022. This history is many years old. At least you should start with 2013. And the last thing I would like to say, you'd like to count the citizens which died. Did you count the people that died on Maidan in 2013-2014? How many people died? How many people were killed by uh, snipers? How many Armed, uh, law enforcement uh, people died. How many people were killed with stones? Have you ever reported on that? At least all, all, once during those years. So it's not for you to say that there is an operation conducted. It's not a beginning of a war. It's an operation to end a war which has been going on for many years. And ignoring it and not recognizing it is just as criminal as uh, uh, servicing informationally Kievan regime. And I am sorry for my emotion. But uh, this has been overdue, and we do not want to listen to and trust your mass media. We will respond to your questions, but such a starting points and such approaches is un are unacceptable, because what you do is propaganda, and uh, it was fine with propaganda in other spheres, but when you tie it to promotion of war, which uh, for two months you have been... Uh, escalating, this is just inadmissible, and then you twist it all and blame the victims. I am sorry. If, if I could answer any of that, please, Mr. Karova. No. No. I, would, I do not want to. Can I ask you, talk about Minsk. You're saying that you were prepared to go and talk with the Ukrainian regime in, in Minsk, uh, but the terms of those talks seem to be um, the total surrender of U Ukraine, you're saying it needs to be following demilitarization. How can that be acceptable to President Zelensky if you're asking him to surrender before he even begins negotiating with you? 
Wait, you said that you heard me. Russia was ready to send an interagency delegation to negotiations in Minsk. We have declared that. We just mentioned it. We are ready for it, and it was said by the press secretary of our president, and, uh, and uh, from MFA I can also say that uh, it is true, such uh, work can start any time. The only question is that whether this the other side, uh, under the influence of the West, uh, will start to trying to whistle out or lie, or you yourself, the represent or your representatives of the Kievan regime, would start uh, com contradicting and uh, debunking each other. I just mentioned the declaration by Kuleba. This is not something I made up. This was reported by various news agencies. They have to determine their position. Are we talking about negotiations or are we pressing such accusations against our country? As I understand it, Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin spokesman, has said that these talks can go ahead once Ukraine has demilitarized. Surely that's just demanding their complete surrender before talks have even begun. No, we have uh, mentioned that uh, we are already ready, and obviously the objectives uh, which uh, have been put forward by the President before the implementation of the corresponding special operation, of course they have not been cancelled by anyone. Yes, they are relevant still, but the issue is that we have reacted to corresponding requests on the part of President Zelensky. We saw his video and gave a reaction which corresponded. Could you explain how you're describing this as the end of the war when it could be the beginning of the biggest military offensive we've seen in Europe since World War II. Could you repeat, please reframe your question? Thank you. You've described this as the end of the war, but it could be the beginning of the biggest military campaign we've seen in Europe since World War II. Answer. Well, no, I'm not going to, to, to fantasize this. This has nothing to do with the situation at hand. We are pursuing a stage-by-stage -stage approach. The operation is ongoing. It has stated objectives. Ministry of Defense is making its, its comments. And we just recently uh, seen this statement by Vladimir Zelensky. We have responded to it. Well, we are not going to, to, to fantasize again. There was a request. We responded to a request. End of story. Welcome back. And uh, that was an exchange uh, between uh, Western media outlets, particularly Sky News and uh, spokeswoman uh, for uh, the Russian Federation, uh, just uh, into the first days of the Russian uh, special military operations in uh, Ukraine. And uh, we want to go now to uh, some of the addresses uh, that were delivered at the United Nations uh, General Assembly uh, just this last past week when there was a debate over a resolution to condemn uh, the Russian Federation uh, for its intervention in Ukraine. And uh, although the uh, resolution passed, a number, as we mentioned in our Pan-African Newswire segment, a number of African countries did not vote on the resolution. Uh, Eritrea and the Horn of Africa uh, voted against the resolution, and uh, several countries uh, spoke against it, uh, including Cuba, uh, Venezuela, Syria, 
Uh, and uh, right now we want to present uh, the statement uh, delivered by the Cuban ambassador uh, to the United Nations uh, on the uh, resolution, uh, which uh, was, uh, they felt, uh, you know, designed uh, to a one-sided uh, resolution that would not facilitate a diplomatic solution to the Ukrainian crisis. Let's listen in. February 26, issued a statement on the events in Ukraine, expressing clearly its position for a solution which will guarantee the safety and sovereignty of all concerned and that will respond to legitimate humanitarian concerns. Cuba is a country that defends international law. It is committed to the Charter of the United Nations. Cuba will always defend peace and and ambiguously respond to the threat or use of force against any state. For this reason, we firmly support uh, the proclamation of America, uh, Latin America and the Caribbean as a zone of peace signed by heads of state uh, uh, in Havana in our, for our region in 2014. Cuba is also committed to international humanitarian law and it calls on all parties to protect the population, their goods, and civilian infrastructure. We deeply deplore the losses of life of innocent civilians in Ukraine. The Cuban people has had and continues to have a close relationship with the people of Ukraine. President, it is not possible to rigorously and honestly analyze the current situation in Ukraine without uh, carefully considering the factors that have led to the use of force and the non-observance of legal principles and international standards. Cuba fully supports these principles which it upholds and considers that they are an indispensable reference, particularly for small countries against hegemony, the abuse of power, and injustice. The United States' determination to continue the progressive expansion of NATO towards the borders of the Russian Federation have led to a scenario with unpredictable scope, but which could nevertheless have been avoided. The military movements made by the United States and NATO in recent months are well known in their movement towards regions adjacent to the Russian Federation, preceded by the delivery of modern weapons to Ukraine, which is a military, the equivalent of a military pincer movement. It was a mistake to ignore the Russian Federation's demands for security guarantees, and it was a mistake to suppose that it would remain inactive in the face of a threat to its national security. It is not possible to achieve peace by surrounding 
and closing in on states. The responsibility falls to the government of the United States because of its doctrine of increasingly offensive military policy outside the borders of NATO, which threatens uh, international peace, stability, and security. Our concerns are heightened by the recent decision of NATO to activate for the first time the response force of that military alliance. Cuba rejects the hypocrisy and double standard of these actions. It must be recognized that the United States and NATO in 1999 launched a broad-scale aggression against Yugoslavia, a European country which they broke up at a high cost of lives for their geopolitical purposes whilst ignoring the Charter of the United Nations. The United States and allies have used force on multiple occasions invading sovereign states to trigger regime change and interfering in the internal affairs of other nations that do not bow to their interests of domination and who defend their territorial integrity and independence. They are also responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of civilians, which they describe as collateral damage. Millions of displaced people and vast destruction across the face of our planet as a result of their wars of pillage and plunder. Present, the draft resolution on the situation in Ukraine, which was which was not approved in the Security Council last February 25th, was not seen, was not designed as a real uh, search uh, for solutions to the current crisis. The text submitted to the General Assembly today suffers from the same deficiencies and lack of balance. It does not take into account the legitimate concerns of all parties concerned nor does it acknowledge the responsibility of those who took aggressive actions which precipitated the escalation of this conflict. President, we welcome the opening of negotiations between Russia and Ukraine. Dialogue and negotiations, not war, are the only way to resolve this conflict. Cuba will continue advocating a diplomatic uh, solution which is serious, constructive, and realistic for the current crisis in Europe through peaceful means that will guarantee the freedom and sovereignty of all, as well as peace, stability, and regional and international stability. Thank you very much. I thank the distinguished representative. Those were the words of the Cuban representative to the United Nations, Pedro Luis Pedroso Cuesta, concerning the conflict in Ukraine. Stay tuned with Tell Us Our English for more on the development of this and more global news. Welcome back. And that was uh, from uh, Telesur. Uh, covering the, by uh, the Republic of Cuba at the United Nations General Assembly 
earlier this week during a debate over a resolution to condemn the Russian Federation uh, for its military intervention in Ukraine in response, specifically in response to the expansion of the North America Treaty, uh, North, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, it should be the North American Treaty Organization, NATO, uh, which was founded in 1949 and which uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the socialist countries in Eastern Europe has uh, expanded. And uh, the U.S. Uh, is seeking to bring uh, Ukraine into uh, both uh, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, the, which is the military alliance, and uh, the European Union. Uh, also speaking uh, was a representative of the Syrian Arab Republic, uh, where uh, the Russian Federation intervened in late 2015 under the administration of former President Barack Obama, who was backing an effort to remove uh, the legitimate uh, government of Syria under President uh, Bashar al-Assad. And uh, Russia, of course, intervened uh, with enormous air power and other um, military uh, support. And that has, of course, uh, helped to stabilize the situation in Syria, along with uh, the intervention of the Islamic Republic of Iran and support uh, from other uh, resistance forces throughout the region. Let's listen to the statement uh, on uh, this uh, resolution uh, from uh, the UN representative from the Syrian Arab Republic. As we are going live to the United Nations Emergency Special Session, the 193 members of the organization debate on the military operations in Ukraine. The Syrian representative is expected to pronounce his government's take on the issue, as well as other countries who support Russia's claims. What's curious about today's session is that despite successive crises and major challenges that the international community has been facing for decades, and where the Security Council has failed to take on its responsibility for maintaining international peace and security, Western states have never demonstrated so much in calling an emergency special session of the General Assembly. This shows a politics of hypocrisy, of double standards, as well as one based on interests and not principles. The memories and the files of the, international, of the United Nations have ample proof of the many examples of illegitimate Western intervention and acts of aggression of the United States of America and their allies in, in NATO that have caused millions of innocent deaths in Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq and Syria. Not to mention the blockades that have been imposed on a number of peoples in Latin America and elsewhere to achieve their objectives. We haven't seen much enthusiasm for a session such as today's back then, far from it, quite the contrary. My delegation believes that this historic emergency session on the situation in Ukraine completes the anti-Russian campaign that finds its origins in the provocative and hostile rhetoric towards Russia 
propagated by the West to stoke tensions in Ukraine and to thereby compromise the security and territorial integrity of Russia. Mr. President, the Syrian Arab Republic underscores the importance of resolving regional disputes and international ones through dialogue and diplomacy and supporting the efforts to maintain security and stability around the world. We respect the principles of the United Nations Charter. The Syrian Arab Republic condemns the campaign organised and led by the West and their media against the Russian Revolution. In particular, the deliberate spreading of fake news, of insidious as well as photos and videos that have been doctored, all of this to, to prevent Russia from exercising its natural right to defend its sovereignty and its security, as well as to protect its people in line with the UN Charter. Some Western countries have gone as far as closing down Russian media. They have banned them to prevent the public in Europe finding out what's happening. Since the coup in 2014, Western countries have ignored the historic links between the Ukrainian and Russian peoples. They have also ignored the suffering of the inhabitants of the Donbass region, the suffering that has lasted many years. These states deemed it more important to give NATO a zone of influence at the gates of Russia, leading to suffering in Donetsk and Lugansk. When Russia launched a special operation to protect the people there, these same states began a campaign based on the UN Charter and what it qualifies as humanitarian suffering in Ukraine, setting aside the deep-rooted causes of the crisis that they themselves are responsible for. It is a paroxysm of political hypocrisy. Mr. President, the escalation of the situation between Russia and Ukraine comes from Western states not respecting their commitments towards Russia, and that's been going on for decades. These states have ignored the legitimate security concerns of Russia and have not hesitated to provide weapons and missiles to Ukraine, showing generosity and downplaying the effects of their decisions on regional security and stability. Nonetheless, the Russian Federation has always made pragmatic proposals and has demonstrated restraint in the face of American and European attempts, as well as those of NATO, to exacerbate the situation. These proposals, though, have been ignored and Russia's security concerns have not been taken seriously. Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, this is what the United States and the West 
are resorting to once again coercive measures, unilateral coercive measures in contravention of international law and the UN Charter. These measures are simply fanning the flames and harming the people in the region. My country condemns the punitive measures and believes that being on the right side of history means rejecting the West bellicose policies in order rather to preserve the interests of the peoples who oppose them and imposes their interventionism. Thank you. Doy las gracias al distinguido representante de Siria. We were listening to Syria's representative to the United Nations, who was addressing Ukraine crisis and NATO's advance over the eastern region. The Syrian representative condemned the U.S. and NATO's interventionist and imperialist actions, from blockades and sanctions to war. He also said the crisis is part of an anti-Russia smear campaign and media narrative, and also asked the U.N. top leaders to find a pacific solution to the crisis and respect for the free decision capacity of all nations. He also said the West powers conveniently ignored the historical ties between Ukraine and Russia, as well as the suffering and claims of the Donetsk and Luhansk territories, and used Russia's defense to the Donbas people's rights to build up anti-Russian The Syrian official also said these war games by the West only led to the stabilization of global peace, not only by fueling hate, but also providing arms and war material. Teletor English will provide you with more details, and the U.S. Security Council holds this special session. Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, the statement uh, to the United Nations General Assembly uh, from the United Nations uh, Ambassador to from the Syrian Arab Republic. Right now we want to listen to the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela's uh, United Nations Ambassador's statement during a debate on uh, this resolution uh, that, of course, uh, the United States was obviously behind uh, to condemn uh, the Russian Federation. Uh, for its military intervention in Ukraine uh, in response to a threat of the expansion of NATO further uh, into Eastern Europe uh, to the borders of Russia and other states uh, in the region. Let's listen to the statement uh, from Venezuela. Mr. President, as a founding member of the United Nations, the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela is a firm defender of the purposes and principles enshrined in the founding charter of our organization, as well as in norms of international law. Mr. President, the situation in Ukraine has been broadly debated in recent years. In addressing this matter, our country, faithful to our diplomacy of peace, has called for a peaceful settlement of any dispute which might exist in the Eastern European region. In that spirit, in 2015, as a non-permanent member of the Security Council, we voted in favor of Resolution 2202, the package of measures for the implementation of the Minsk Agreement. In that year, we built a diplomatic path agreed to by everyone to find a peaceful solution to the civil war in Ukraine. However, 
and sadly these agreements were wasted after seven years of violations within Ukraine which widened the national divide and increased the suffering of the civilian population. The violent domestic crisis was heightened by another factor, the growing outside pressure of the NATO military bloc towards Ukraine itself with the destructive effect of security assurances for all, in particular for the Russian Federation, and which are the basis for security architecture in Europe. The steady expansion of NATO towards Eastern Europe has added a further threat, strategic in nature, to the national crisis in Ukraine. Today we are seeing a crisis at three levels with regrettable loss of human life, and the developments on the ground are changing at a high rate of speed. What arose as a violent national divide in Ukraine has escalated into an international military crisis. Currently, less than a week since the onset of the conflict, we are heading dangerously towards a third level. That is an escalation between four nuclear powers, which in changing their strategic security balances and attempting to destabilize one of them through an economic blockade, in this case the Russian Federation, could lead to the unleashing of a conflict of global proportions. This situation has no precedent in our history since the Second World War. Mr. President, in the current circumstances in Eastern Europe, security is a value which must prevail for all parties involved. The United Nations was established after the greatest war in history to guarantee the maintenance of international peace and security. Its greatest success has been avoiding a third world war. And even when it's not been possible to avoid armed conflict, the role of our organization through political negotiation has been to reverse conflict and to return to diplomacy for a peaceful resolution, and that is our duty today, to correct our path and to avoid going into a point of no return which will compromise the survival of present and future generations. We must work towards ending an escalation of tensions. Our role today is not to fuel tensions, and divides at all three levels that I referred to at the national, regional, and global level. The United Nations cannot be used to further fuel conflicts. We emphasize the fact that this is the only institution in the world with the capacity, the experience, and the instruments required to achieve a peaceful settlement of disputes of the magnitude we are witnessing today. There is a growing threat of a global conflict between nuclear powers. Because of all of this, and in order to get out of this labyrinth we are in today, we appeal to this General Assembly and to responsible members of the international community to address this crisis at three levels in a balanced fashion and very cautiously so that we avoid furthering divisions. We therefore reject the implementation of unilateral and retaliatory coercive measures 
for economic, commercial, or financial purposes because they will intensify the crisis and prolong the conflict. While mankind continues to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic, a new global economic crisis is being imposed by design for the express purpose of generating suffering for hundreds of millions of people worldwide, a deliberately generated crisis in order to destabilize a nuclear power. This is not the path to peace. Mr. President, the principle of indivisible security presupposes that the security of one country cannot sacrifice the security of others and military blocs such as NATO cannot expand indefinitely, threatening the security of other regions of the planet. It is therefore necessary to begin direct negotiations allowing for prompt, peaceful, comprehensive and lasting resolution of the current circumstances at all three levels and where the concerns of all parties concerned are taken into account. Political dialogue between Russia and Ukraine and on that point, we welcome the recent contacts in Belarus and on the other, direct talks on an equal footing between Russia and NATO, which will allow for the building of an effective, balanced and sustainable mechanism for European security. In conclusion, the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela reiterates its unwavering commitment to the purposes and principles of the UN Charter. From this rostrum, we appeal for an end to war propaganda and to speeches of intolerance guided by ideologies of hate, and we emphasize that only through diplomacy, dialogue, and restraint without pressure or sanctions can we establish a necessary ceasefire at all three levels of the crisis in Ukraine and avoid a chain reaction which will lead us walking mindlessly into the abyss. Thank you. Avoid a chain reaction which will lead us walking We are going Welcome back. We were watching and listening live statements of Cuban representatives to the UN regarding the situation in Ukraine. The Cuban official lamented the violent situation that escalated to an international crisis, also the loss of lives. He also condemned the situation of the role and the role of the US and the Western powers in it. Also, he said this is an unprecedented situation and also that could cause irreversible effects and stressed that the right path is diplomacy and dialogue. The Cuban diplomats also stress the United Nations has the capacity to cope, deal, and end the violent escalation if it follows cautiously its own principles. Cuba's representatives said there are backstage moves and economic interests in this escalation, and also being the U.S. and NATO the masterminds of it. He recalled recent attempts of dialogue in Belarus and acknowledged them as the genesis of the possible solution to the crisis, and he also called for an end to the smear campaigns and anti-Russia propaganda. Teletor English will provide you with more details. Stay with us. Welcome back, and uh, we want to thank... Uh Tell us so English uh, for providing uh, that news report in regard to the debate that took place uh, earlier this week at the United Nations uh, General Assembly over a resolution to condemn 
uh, the Russian Federation for its military intervention in Ukraine, uh, Cuba, uh, Venezuela, Syria, all spoke out uh, against uh, the resolution. Uh, We also have a statement uh, from uh, the Republic of South Africa, which we'll play uh, at a later time. We'll take a break. Uh, We'll be back with more of our program for this week. abuse it I gave you tender love and care oh baby now don't you misuse it girl and if you got somebody else if you got somebody else on your mind I want you to please, 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 baby, ah, let me down. Supposed to do 
Saturday, uh, March 5th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, if you'd like to have access to this program, all you need to do is go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. You can have access to today's program as well as 
1,100 other archived editions of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Right now, we want to begin our <clears throat> Women's History Month uh, programming. Uh, we're going to look uh, back at uh, the role and the origins of the women's movement in North America, uh, which has its uh, genesis in the struggle against African enslavement uh, during uh, the 19th century. Uh, this is a um, report on women and abolitionism in the 19th century. Uh, let's listen in. Born in 1793 in Massachusetts, Lucretia had been a Quaker preacher since she was a young woman. Her true vocation, she finally decided, was the cause of emancipation. She saw with a feeling of horror the great warehouses stocked with human flesh to be bought and sold. She had no patience with talk of gradual emancipation. She became, with William Lloyd Garrison, an immediate abolitionist, and thus a virtual social outcast in her day. The abolitionists were considered professional lunatics. Henry Clay called their doctrine a visionary dogma which holds that Negro slaves cannot be the subject of property. Ministers asserted from their pulpits that the Negro was condemned by God's word and Noah's curse to be the servant of man. Anti-slavery advocates were tarred and feathered. Whittier at Concord was stoned. Garrison was dragged through the streets of Boston at the end of a rope. But Lucretia went quietly about her activities. Under her guidance, the woman's organization raised large sums of money, established a school for colored children, endowed a Negro orphanage, assumed all problems of the Negro as within their duty. But the American Anti-Slavery Association was sharply divided on the question of women participating in public meetings. And nevertheless, at the meeting of 1840, despite some trouble over this question, Lucretia Mott was chosen as one of the delegates to the World's Anti-Slavery Convention to be held in London later that year. Eight women, along with such men as Wendell Phillips, George Bradburn of the Massachusetts Legislature, William Lloyd Garrison and Henry B. Stanton attended as delegates. But upon their arrival in London, it soon became evident to the entire contingent that the British officials had no intention of allowing the women to be seated. They were advised to submit peaceably to the dictates of the committee which proposed to exclude them. But the American contingent chose to make an issue of the seating of the women. On the morning of the first meeting, the women were admitted and seated in a part of the hall behind a bar and a curtain which had been reserved to ladies as guests. Young Wendell Phillips rose and moved that a committee be appointed to prepare a correct list of delegates with instructions to include in this list the names of all persons bearing credentials from an anti-slavery society. This immediately opened the question of seating the women delegates. The delegate from Boston still has the floor. Will you proceed, Mr. Phillips? <clears throat> Thank you, Honorable Chairman. As I was saying, Massachusetts has for several years acted on the principle of admitting women to an equal seat with men in the deliberative bodies of anti-slavery societies. When the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society received your invitation to the London Convention, we interpreted your phrase, friends of the slave, to include women as well as men since it must be presumed you knew our customs. Under the circumstances, we do not think it just or equitable to that state, nor to the women delegates here representing that state and others in America, that after the trouble, the sacrifice, the self-devotion of those who have left their families and 
kindred and occupations in their own land to come 3,000 miles to attend this world's convention, this should be refused a place in its deliberation. Yes, yes, yes. Mr. Sturge. Mr. Chairman, as soon as we heard the liberal interpretation the Americans had given to our first invitation, we issued another as early as February 15th, in which the description of those who were to form the convention is set forth as consisting of gentlemen. Honorable Dr. Bowring, I think the custom of excluding females is more honored in its breach than in its observance. In this country, sovereign rule is placed in the hands of a female. And we, as a society, are associated with a body of Christians, the Quakers, who have given to their women a great, honorable, and religious prominence. I look upon this delegation from America as one of the most interesting, the most encouraging, and the most delightful symptoms of the times. I cannot believe that we shall refuse to welcome gratefully the cooperation which is here offered us. The Reverend Burnett. Gentlemen. The Reverend Burnett. Gentlemen, I pray you be calm. I assure you, gentlemen, I have the greatest to the most profound respect for the ladies of the American delegation. But I believe that an English interpretation should be put on English phraseology. Ladies, I appeal to you to relinquish that which you call your right to be seated and put an end to this undignified controversy. It never occurred to the British and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society that they were inviting ladies when they issued their invitation. Better would it be that this convention should be dissolved at once than that the Honorable Delegate from Massachusetts' motion to include the ladies in this body should be adopted. The reception of women as a part of this convention would, in the view of many, be not only a violation of the customs of England, but of the ordinance of Almighty God. The Honorable, the Honorable Reverend Galusha of New York. In support of the other side of this question... Reference has been made to your sovereign. I most cordially approve of her policy and sound wisdom and commend to the consideration of our American female friends who are so deeply interested in the subject the example of your noble queen, who by sanctioning her consort, His Royal Highness Prince Albert, in taking the chair on an occasion not dissimilar to this, showed her sense of propriety by putting her head foremost in an assembly of gentlemen. I have no objection to woman's being the neck to turn the head aright, but do not wish to see her assume the place of the head. <laughs> the chair recognizes Senator Broadburn of Massachusetts. We are told that it would be outraging the customs of England to allow women to sit in this convention. I have a great respect for the customs and habits of old England. But I ask, gentlemen, if it be right to set up the customs and habits, not to say the prejudices of Englishmen, as a standard for the government on this occasion of Americans and of persons belonging to several other independent nations, I can see neither reason nor policy in so doing. Besides, I deprecate the principle of the objection. In America, it would exclude from our conventions all persons of color, 
forbear, customs, habits, tastes, prejudices would be outraged by their admission. And I do not wish to be deprived of the aid of those who have done so much for this cause for the purpose of gratifying any mere custom or prejudice. Women have furnished most essential aid in accomplishing what has been done in the state of Massachusetts. If, in the legislature of that state, I have been able to do anything in furtherance of that cause, it was mainly owing to the valuable assistance I derived from the women. And I, and shall such women, be denied seats in this convention? My friend George Thompson, yonder can testify to the faithful services rendered to this cause by those same women. He can tell you that when gentlemen of property and standing undertook to drive him from Boston, putting his life in peril, it was our women who made their own persons a bulwark of protection around him. And shall such women be refused seats here in a convention seeking the emancipation of slaves throughout the world? Never! What a misnomer to call this a world's convention of abolitionists when some of the oldest and most thoroughgoing abolitionists in the world are denied the right to be represented in it by delegates of their own choice! The chair recognizes Mr. Thompson. I've listened to the arguments advanced on this side and on that side on this vexed question. I listened with profound attention to the arguments of the Honorable Mr. Burnett, expecting that from him I should hear the strongest arguments that could be adduced on this subject, as on any other subject upon which he might be pleased to employ his talents. What are the strongest arguments? which one of the greatest champions on any question which he chooses to espouse has brought forward. They are these. First, that English phraseology should be construed according to English usage. Second, that it was never contemplated by the Anti-Slavery Committee that ladies should occupy a seat in this convention. Third, that the ladies of England are not here as delegates. And fourthly, that he has no desire to offer an affront to the ladies now present. Here, I presume, are the strongest arguments the gentleman has to adduce, for he never fails to use to the best advantage the resources within his reach. I look at these arguments, and I place on the other side of the question the fact that there are in this assembly ladies who present themselves as delegates from the oldest societies in America. I expected that Mr. Burnett would grapple with the constitutionality of their credentials. I thought he would dispute the right of a convention assembled in Philadelphia for the abolition of slavery, consisting of delegates from different states in the Union and comprised of individuals of both sexes to send one or all of the ladies now in our presence. I thought he would grapple with the fact that those ladies came to us who have no slavery from a country in which they have slaves as the representatives of two millions and a half of captives. But when I look at the arguments against the title of these women to sit amongst us, I cannot but consider them frivolous and groundless. 
The simple question before us is whether these ladies, taking into account their credentials, the talent they've displayed, the suffering they've endured, the journey they've undertaken, should be acknowledged by us in virtue of these high titles or should be shut out for the reasons stated. The chair again recognizes Mr. Phillips of Boston. Gentlemen, I have been asked to withdraw my motion, which would admit the legally elected woman delegates from America to participation in this body, because this convention tells us that it is not ready to meet the ridicule of the morning papers <laughs> and to stand up against the customs of England. In America, we listen to no such argument. If we had done so, we had never been here as abolitionists. It is the custom there not to admit colored men into respectable society. And we have been told again and again that we are outraging the decencies of humanity when we permit colored men to sit by our side. When we have submitted to brickbats and the tartar and feathers in America rather than yield to the custom prevalent there of not admitting colored men into our friendship. Shall we yield to parallel custom of prejudice against women in old England? No, we We cannot yield this question if we would, for it is a matter of conscience. But we would not yield it on the ground of expediency. In doing so, we should feel that we were striking off the right arm of our enterprise. We could not go back to America to ask for any aid from the women of Massachusetts if we had deserted them when they chose to send out their own sisters as their representatives here. We have argued it over and over again and decided it time after time in every society in the land, in favor of the women. We have not changed by crossing the water. We stand here, the advocates of the same principle that we contend for in America. We think it right for women to sit by our side there, and we think it right for them to do the same here. We ask the convention to admit them. If they do not choose to grant it, the responsibility rests on their shoulders. It is a matter of conscience, and British virtue ought not to ask us to yield. The chair recognizes the Reverend Harvey, delegate of Glasgow. It was stated by our brother from America, but with him it is a matter of conscience. Well, in truth, it is a question of the word of God and of the particular sphere in which woman is to act. I must say, whether I am right in my interpretations of the word of God or not, that my own decided convictions are, if I were to give a vote in favor of females sitting and deliberating in such an assembly as this, that I should be acting in opposition to the plain teaching of the Word of God. The chair chair recognizes another American representative, the Reverend Stout. My vote is that we confirm the list of delegates, that we take votes on that as an amendment, and that we henceforth entertain this question no more. Are we not met here, pledged to sacrifice all? 
in order that we may do something against slavery? And shall we be divided on this paltry question and suffer the whole tide of benevolence to be stopped by a straw? No! No! You talk of being men, then be men. Consider what is worthy of your attention. The Reverend Dr. Morrison. I feel, I believe, as our brethren from America and many English friends do at this moment, that we are treading on the brink of a precipice, and that precipice is awaking in our bosoms by this discussion feelings that will not only be averse to the great object for which we have assembled, but inconsistent, perhaps, in some degree, with the Christian spirit which, I trust, will pervade all meetings connected with the anti-slavery cause. We have been unanimous against the common foe, but we are this day in danger of creating division among heartfelt friends. Will our American brethren put us in this position? Will they keep up a discussion in which the delicacy, the honor, the respectability of those excellent females who have come from the Western world are concerned? I tremble at the thought of discussing the question in the presence of these ladies, for whom I entertain the most profound respect. And I am bold to say that but for the introduction, the question of women's rights, It would be impossible for the shrinking nature of women to subject itself to the infliction of such a discussion as this. The chair recognizes Mr. Wendell Phillips of Massachusetts. Mr. Chairman, as the hour is late, I will refrain from replying to the arguments of the opposition. Though I should like to call your attention to numerous misstatements of fact in the arguments of those who oppose the seating of women delegates to this convention, I shall not do so. Mr. Chairman, I call for the question. Question! Question! The chair has heard a call for a question. Is there a second? Second! Second! It has been moved and seconded that the following motion of the Honorable Mr. Phillips be now placed before this convention for vote that a committee of five be appointed to prepare a correct list of the members of this convention uh, with instructions to include in such list all persons bearing credentials from any anti-slavery body. The chair wishes to remind the delegates that an affirmative vote carries with it the implicit understanding that all persons, irrespective of sex, be seated as delegates to this convention. Those in favor of the aforesaid motion respond by saying aye. 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 Those opposed. No. 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 Motion is defeated. With Philip's motion voted down, the women delegates to the London World's Anti-Slavery Convention were compelled to remain behind the curtain in the ladies' section of the hall. The women were allowed to take no part in a meeting that they had traveled 3,000 miles to attend. 
This humiliating experience confirmed in Lucretia Mott a resolve to labor for another cause in addition to the emancipation of slaves after she should return home, the cause of the emancipation of women. In 1848, in Seneca Falls, New York, with Lucretia Mott again the guiding spirit, the first Women's Rights Convention was called, and a Declaration of Rights for Women, modeled on the Declaration of Independence, was adopted a document which would have startled even Thomas Jefferson. And uh, that was a historical account uh, of uh, the anti-slavery conference in 1840 uh, in England and the denial of women's rights as delegates. Of course, this fueled uh, the women's movement uh, in uh, the United States and around the world. And uh, it is uh, Women's History Month uh, in the United States, and uh, here at the Pan-African Journal, we'll be presenting archived uh, audio files on various aspects of uh, women's history and its intersection uh, with African and world history. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for Saturday, March 5th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, to this program. We'll take a musical break. We'll be back with more of our program for uh, this week.
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and uh, I'm your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe, and uh, of course, uh, we're going to continue with our Women's History Month programming, and uh, this is a uh, discussion on women's slavery and the Civil War, a historical examination of this question. Uh, Let's listen in. Welcome to Talking History. I'm Amy Merle Taylor, and I'm happy to be here with Catherine Clinton, who is one of our nation's experts on the history of the South, uh, specifically of women, slavery, and the Civil War. She's the author of, from my count, over 20 books on these subjects, and we are happy to have her here this afternoon. Welcome, Dr. Clinton. Thank you, Amy. Now, you have been writing about the South for well, I didn't even count how many years, but for a number of years. And about 30. About 30, about 30 years, okay. And I'm curious about what initially drew you to study the South. Are you from the South yourself? Well, when I'm speaking in, in the South about Southern history, and that question often comes up, what got you interested in Southern history? So when you're among Southerners, you just say, well, I was born naturally bright, and they usually cotton on to that kind of answer, but I really think growing up in Missouri, which was the borderlands, I really learned a lot about, of course, the importance of regionalism, the importance of place. And the South was the most distinctive region in the country when I was growing up, and I think it has persisted in having a certain flavor, a certain intrigue, and that's something that has always really interested me. Uh, I don't think it's... um, necessary to lay claim to southern roots to do southern history. Maybe I should invent a middle name so I can have three names like all the great distinguished historians, but I do think it is important to establish yourself. And since I started out originally doing African-American studies at Harvard and and um, not being black myself, it was always raised, why are you white and studying blacks? And I'd say, well, do we have to be very, very old to do medieval history. I mean, I really do believe that we we are intellectually attracted to certain topics. And of course, slavery and its legacy in American history was so important to me growing up in the 60s and watching really the transformation of American society. And it's still transforming. It's still a part of our life. But I think it's the compelling sense of region and place and its legacy in America today. Mm-hmm. Do you think being an outsider, you might say, or somebody who does not self-identify as Southern gives you a particularly interesting vantage point, or can you study it in a different way? I love the concept of insider-outsider, indeed, because I have chosen Southern history, and I'm so interested in it. I've been welcomed into the fold. People have been very kind, and yet, at the same time, when I'm in um, inside that fold, I often look at it a different way. So one of my earliest studies, my MA thesis, and and uh, two of my books are on Fanny Kemble, who was an insider-outsider. She was a British actress. She came to the United States. She was a great sensation. She married 
um, someone who inherited the second largest slaveholding estate in Georgia, and she ended up going down there to visit on the Sea Islands, and she was a plantation mistress. Her husband owned the vast estates of the Butler Empire, but she was also a self-identified abolitionist. So the insider-outsider status is something that has interested me, and I, I do believe, for example, that we need to be understanding and empathetic, but we also need to be critical. So maybe that's why I've never explored my roots, but tried to really be fascinated by other people's roots. Mm -hmm. Well, one subject that you have um, brought a critical eye to are women like Fanny Campbell, the white women of the antebellum South. And that was one of your first books, or your, your very first book. My first The book. Plantation Mistress. Yes, which came out of my work um, at Princeton as a graduate student. And it was something I kept waiting for people to really uh, stop mythologizing and caricaturing the white Southern female in the South. But I found in all that bounty of literature on the planter class and on slavery and slaveholding, really the missing element to me when I began my study in the early 70s was the plantation mistress. And I do think we've had marvelous studies, really interregional, deep South, uh, city South. We've looked at so many different questions. We, we even have some uh, black slaveholding women that we can look at. We, we, we really have a vast and various literature. And yet, wherever I go, the myth persists. There's still images. I, I do think at the beginning of the 21st century, we're beginning to see a new kind of woman, but I argue it's coming out of popular culture. Perhaps. But why do you think that is? Why does this image persist for so long? Is it just Margaret Mitchell was so influential? Well, certainly there, the, it was the most popular historical novel of the 20th century. It had an international following. Gone with the Wind, that is. Gone with the Wind remains a pull. You can go visit the Margaret Mitchell House in Atlanta, which has a center for Southern literature where authors come and speak almost every week of the year. It's a marvelous institution. But when I see Japanese tourists visiting, Swedish tourists visiting, I think of the enormous popular pull. Of course, people forget that the... The pull came out of it being written during a worldwide depression, and the pull was the talk of a plucky heroine pulling herself up and out of this depression and triumphing over all sorts of obstacles. She was scheming, she was clever, she was bright. Um, some people have characterized her less generously than I do, but I, I find that fascinating. However, I would say, has she been fully replaced by um, Ada in Cold Mountain or Ruby, which is a recent, not as popular movie, but certainly very compelling portraits of Southern women and I, for one, was when the book came out by Charles Fraser, I was so taken with its its vivid portrayal of the home front. And again, in Civil War studies, we've had a great transformation over the past quarter century. You've been a part of it, publishing essays, and I'm happy to say I'm really pleased to see the complexity. I mean, you're writing about what Southern women were asking the government, demanding from the government during the Civil War. When I published Southern Families, in which your essay appears, it was something that we were still interested in the divisions of the Civil War. We're still interested in family life, and those things are still very much 
apart, I think, of our modern landscape. So the myths are mixing in with, I think, new realities, grittier realities. And, of course, at the end of the 20th century, we could finally confront Thomas Jefferson may have fathered children by a slave. We're now getting into the murky details, did George Washington as well? Uh, we certainly know that his wife's half-sister, um, Anne Dandridge, lived with Martha Washington, her half-sister, this, this mixed-race child. So the whole concept of the mixed-race family is a part of our legacy of slavery, is something that I worked on very early in my, in my work, and I'm continuing to work on. I'm, I'm pleased to see that it's, I think, something, sadly, that's still a part of our legacy. There's a great project at Brandeis, um, Feminist Sexual Ethics, a three-year project on slavery's long shadow, and women looking at women in Muslim culture, women in Christian culture, but certainly women in African-American culture in America, and how slavery shapes your lives. And I'm writing about what I call um, sexual hypocrisy, from Thomas Jefferson to Strom Thurmond, that I think the appearance of Strom Thurmond's daughter on the front page of the New York Times really struck me as a legacy of slavery and something still a part of our culture, something we need to explore. That's interesting. That definitely follows a theme, it seems, in your works of, as you say, getting beyond the mythology and getting into the really gritty realities of the South and the very complex realities. And I'm curious... Um, well, I did just write a book on a Southern woman that some people really don't recognize as part of that theme. Harriet Tubman. Of course. Born in the South, enslaved as a child, who liberated herself. And I'm really not interested in putting Harriet Tubman qua Southern woman, but rather a mythologized character, someone who's this mammy children's bookshelf, underground railroad, fable figure. Mm -hmm. And in my biography, I try and write about her not simply as a conductor on the Underground Railroad, but to go back to the period and look and see that she was known at the time by the contemporary term an abductor. She went behind enemy lines, and she established those enemy lines. The slave power was an enemy to be defeated. She saw the Civil War as the Underground Railroad coming above ground and moving forward so that there would be a great uprising. And this is part of, I think, the new trend of looking at the Civil War as enslaved persons taking control, making determinations. Indeed, some people have gone so far as to say the aspect of the Civil War as a slave rebellion has been neglected, and we need to really look at this. Now, I don't quite go that far in Harriet Tubman, but in new work on the Underground Railroad, I'm pleased to see that we're following this course. And also that she lived a long and rich life, dying on uh, the anniversary anniversary of her death is this week. March 10th is Harriet Tubman Day. She died in 1913, and between the end of the Civil War and 1913, she was a philanthropist. She established the Harriet Tubman home. She was someone who was concerned about race and gender. She worked for women's suffrage. She worked for disabled veterans. So I think it's important to go beyond the myth of the underground, uh, uh, that she was simply a runaway slave helping other slaves. She was, indeed, but she was much more than that. And so I hope that my book will really explore those topics and bring her off the children's shelf and into the pantheon of American heroes. And it's one, if I understand correctly, one of the first or the first adult biography of Tubman since the early 20th century. Is that correct? The last biography of her was published in 1943 by a journalist who grew up in her hometown of Auburn, New York, and had heard about her and went in pursuit of her. And I tell you, it's one of the most 
compelling um, stories to read his correspondence, his his real investigative techniques, and then the difficulty he had getting the book published. Reading all of his rejection letters from publishers was really quite quite stunning. And when I came and out, why did they reject it? Um, who was Harriet Tubman? Who cared about Harriet Tubman in 1943? And uh, the book was published by an African American press and. When you look at the fact that that when I was an undergraduate at Harvard in African American Studies, I don't ever remember hearing Harriet Tubman's name. When I was teaching there in the uh, early 1990s, I was asked by an encyclopedia to write an article on her, and I went and found out that there were biographies in the works on Sojourner Truth. There was uh, just recently um, a biography of Rosa Parks, uh, a biography of Marian Anderson, all these wonderful African-American heroines. But how could we not have a biography of Harriet Tubman? So I decided, well, I had many, as you point out, I've been publishing a lot of books and I juggle a lot of responsibilities and my two children. And I did quit teaching full time in order to pursue a writing career and actually got into children's books during that. So I think Harriet Tubman as a children's book figure, brought me into why isn't there an adult biography of her? And we need to really stop the mammification, desexualization, and look at her for what she was, a warrior, a woman, someone who was fighting for social justice her entire life, and a great humanitarian. I want to get back to the Civil War. Um, you've done a lot of work, not just on Fanny Kemble, but the, the collected volume, um, Southern Families at War, uh, you've written Terra Revisited, Did I... Women War, and the Plantation Legend. That's correct. And um, really, a little over a decade ago, Divided Houses, Gender in the Civil War. Which, of course, is the big one, which really opened the doors to thinking about or looking at the Civil War through the lens of gender. For so long, the Civil War has been a subject of military history, for good reason. Uh, but you really helped to kind of turn our attention to it in a different direction. And what what compelled you to do that? What, uh, what are the origins of that? The origins of that were lunch. I always tell people, make sure you have lunch with people. And my colleague, Nina Silber, had just come to Boston, and she was working on her first book and was looking at questions of gender. And we were talking about going to conferences and seeing all this good work being done. But how could we get a, a, a call out for more good work? And so Divided Houses, I think, was the first call to arms. We need to arm ourselves with an understanding of the Civil War as having many battlefronts. The home front was just as contested. The issues that went on after the war, just as contested, so that I would write about African-American women during Reconstruction, trying to reconfigure notions of ladyhood, womanhood, that, that many, of the many, many of the pieces in the volume have now become wonderful books. But it's also true that it was just a beginning, and it is, I say that because now a sequel, uh, which isn't really, um, uh, is a follow-up of sorts, a 21st century um, anthology that Nina Silver and I are editing will be out soon. It's called Battle Scars. Sexuality, gender, and the Civil War, because we use gender as a term, and we usually think of it in terms of women's studies, but gender studies has really matured in the past quarter century, and we lead off with two articles on masculinity. What was the impact of war on New England writers, on, on males in terms of their sense of gender and their sense of themselves, and expanding into areas. Uh, Lisa Carden has a wonderful piece on sexual violence 
and Jim Downs writes about African-American women and children and disease in the wake of the war and the battle over who would care for, who was in charge of, how health and disease is a public issue and it gets racialized. So I think looking at questions of race, gender, sexuality is exploding and expanding. And I really wanted this um, new book uh, to show the embattlement of the field to come out, my own pieces on um, public women. And I used this term, probably most of our listeners aren't familiar, that in the 19th century, a public woman was a prostitute. So when I first said I was working on public women, several of my colleagues said, that's just great. We need to know what women did in public. And of course, we're missing it. But of course, yeah, what were these political women doing? And of course, that ended up being really the theme of, of this essay, which is that when women step outside the domestic sphere, they get smeared as, quote, public women. Their, their sexual propriety gets called into question. It happened in New Orleans with Ben Butler. It happened in Richmond. And so I write about the way in which the, the war transformed attitudes towards sexuality and propriety, and sexual conventions began to change. And I, I put it out there and hope that uh, a new generation will take up that call and we'll see many, many more exciting works in that field. Tell us a little bit more about that. Um, what did the Civil War do? Did it create some new context for prostitution, or what was what was really what was happening in these cities? Well, the Civil War was the single greatest expansion of the sex trade in American history. The explosion was unbelievable. It was the first time you had um, certainly. Uh, thousands of women, if not millions, thrown onto their own devices. The economic dislocation that went on was horrendous. You also had 30,000 men coming into the Memphis area. <laughs> what was going to happen? Of course, prostitutes would follow. How it was going to be controlled, how it was going to be regulated was a real problem. And during the middle of the war, many military men actually became involved in issues of public health, declared it a military need to regulate prostitution, and there were campaigns to regulate prostitution. For the good of the health of the soldiers? For the good of the health. Of Nashville was the capital of this, and it was very effective. It was absolutely reduced the rates of prostitution. They were given medication. They were licensed. They were registered. And it was such a successful campaign that it was going to be exported to another city, to Memphis, but it was headquarters in Washington that put an end to that campaign because was the United States government going to be in the business of endorsing prostitution. So we've always had the sexual policy. So it didn't set any foundation for government policy. No, it didn't. It didn't. Mm -hmm. But it does set a great, a great um, debate in motion for those of us in the field and interested in these questions of sexuality. I mean, people did consult what was going on in France and the licensing of prostitutes there, and they did look abroad. And of course, you had contagious diseases acts and campaigns in England, in towns with naval officers to regulate prostitution. So you did start the big debates, and they went, these debates went on in America within military circles. And, and I think we really need to see a lot of uh, expansion of work on that. So anyone looking for a great topic to do mm -hmm. research on. Um, there, there, there are many, many topics, of course, and, and wonderful records that we're still exploring. I mean, every year I read a wonderful, Francis Clark did a piece on the relationship of men who lost limbs, amputees, and manhood, and sexu sexuality, and how in post-war, post-Civil War America, the loss of a limb really was a sign of honor, and they wore their pinned sleeves 
as a badge. So there there are ways of really talking about the effect of the war on men and women and its after effects. And and I think we're still in a in a really good period, a very a very flourishing period. About a decade ago, I proposed a Civil War book for children to one of my publishers, and they said, I really don't think so, and I was so shocked in the wake of Ken Burns's The Civil War series and in, the, in, in what I thought was a really popular, inter, national popular interest in it. Um, luckily, one of, uh, one of publishers did get interested, and I had a book come out with Scholastic for children on the Civil War, the Scholastic Encyclopedia of the Civil War. And but there's I, another one on Black Soldiers? I did a book mm-hmm. for Houghton Mifflin called The Black Soldier. Mm-hmm. But I also really feel that the stories of the Civil War need to be told to younger children. And, of course, war is a tough subject. But I really am pleased that that the publishing industry now is really welcoming and encouraging of historical topics. The chapter book, historical chapter book for kids is really flourishing, but also history for younger children. So I have my first book for five to eight-year-olds coming out this summer. It's called Hold the Flag High. It's the story of the first Black Medal of Honor winner, William Carney, and the story of his courage at the Battle of Fort Wagner, which was... um, an embellished story of glory, a film by Ed Zwick. And I really thought, why not make a heroic story for children about war? When I first proposed it, there was a little cold feet. Um, But I think, of course, sadly, because our nation remains at war, and war is very much a part of the modern landscape, that stories of heroes are now very appealing. And it's wonderful to see these heroes of the past who were African-Americans being celebrated, who we don't know. We know Molly Pitcher. We know, uh, we, we, we know George Washington. We know um, Robert E. Lee and U.S. Grant. But we really need to know some of the other heroes. And so William Carney will get his due when Hold the Flag High comes out. Well, that's quite a journey you've made from plantation mistress, you know, coming out of a dissertation for an academic audience now to children. But you always throughout dealt with very difficult subjects. You know, again, getting beyond the myth and looking at the conflict. And so when you're now writing for children, how do you write differently? Or how do you approach, you know, the difficult side of history, but do it in a way that children can accept and absorb? Well, I think you can't, you can't, you can simplify but you can't dumb it down. And how you do that, one without the other, is to not condescend and to say you may omit details. You may not give the fuller, expanded story, but you must give at your core an honest, true account. I'd also like to say that although my first book, The Plantation Mistress, came out of my dissertation, that from my earliest work, I really sought a wider audience in the sense that I, I, I call it the Aunt Gladys syndrome. Your Aunt Gladys is going to read your dissertation because you're her niece and so wonderful, and of course it's great. But what about writing for other people's Aunt Gladys's? Why not make history accessible, engaging? Why not have a prose style that will invite people in and make them want to read more history rather than limiting our audience through jargon or um, some theoretical approaches that I think have their place in the in the journals. But I really want history to be so beloved, and I want children to love history. And I had these two boys that were into Star Wars and outer space and, and also uh, manga, reading uh, 
reading graphic novels, and I really wanted to have them engaged in history, and I saw a need to have intelligent, engaging stories for, for children. So that was something I got into. So in some ways, despite what I said, it is really an outgrowth of your early work. I'd like to think so. Yeah. And how, you know, this is something that I struggle with, you know, myself, wanting to uh, appeal to a broad audience. And I think a lot of academic historians see that there's some kind of divide between the public audience and academic the history. The wall that's often established. Yeah. Is it scholarly? And is it a question of writing, as you say, but also the subjects you write about? I mean, have you chosen subjects that are going to be more interesting to a broader audience? Well, I've usually chosen subjects that are engaging to me because I have to spend years with some of these characters. I spent 20 years with Fanny Kemble, and she better be engaging and intriguing and interesting. And and although I I think sometimes you leave these characters behind, I know Harriet Tubman is someone I'll always carry with me that she was engaging. But I am pursuing a biography of Mary Todd Lincoln, and I can't say that I was not influenced by the fact that I was appointed to the Bicentennial Commission, that I've been on the Lincoln um, Soldiers Institute Board of Advisors at Gettysburg College, that I've been interested in the broadening of the field. And and so um, Lincoln Studies is always flourishing from from the centennial in 1909 to 2009. There's never been a lull when there hasn't been an interest. And so I, I am interested in these engaging subjects, but you also hope you can bring something new. I'm, I must say that in 19th century women's history, I've uh, been at, read a lot about it. I've been at a lot of institutions. And, and I was surprised to find out that spiritualism, which was something very much a part of um, Mary Todd's life and Mary Todd Lincoln's experience, was was totally absent from most, quote, academic literature. There is a popular history of it, and it's growing, and I think there's now some cross-pollination, but I really think that's a good example that I think a lot of the American public would be very interested in what was the context of trying to reach out to the other side. In in the 1830s, when you had spiritualism rising, you also had the rise of the telegraph. You were in one place, and people very far in another place we're going to get your messages by a wire. Now, I think explaining that was, was, was difficult and challenging and scientific, but spiritualism also believed you could communicate across the divide as well. So I see some parallels with temporal issues, with spatial issues, with spiritual issues. And, of course, women were at the center of the spiritualist movement. When you start reading spiritualists, they, they were the earliest people doing gender studies, from what I can see in American writing. They were completely obsessed with the feminine and the masculine in each individual, in the body, and the spirit transformed. So I'm, I'm always pursuing subjects, I hope, that will open new doors and, and, and provide um, I hope, uh, an engaging way of, of getting at the past. But I also think, for example, I mean, you mentioned um, um, Harriet Tubman, and, and there are two new books out on Harriet Tubman alongside mine by Jean Humez and Kate Larson, and there are three or four more in the pipeline, and I say, let a hundred Harriets bloom. I like to, to read my colleagues. I like to be engaged, and I think that's why we're interested in history. Um, if, however, we stop debating our colleagues in our books and put it in our footnotes or do these wonderful TV programs, uh, radio programs, TV programs, go to conferences and do that. But in our books, try and bring the richness 
of our enthusiasm to the page. I think that's that's my real commitment and what I've been really interested in. Also, I've I've done some work on films recently because I'm really really interested in the way in which a great documentary or a great feature film could could engage people in the past and and um, you go into a classroom. I do some visiting teaching and you say, "Why are you here?" and the student says, "I just saw The Patriot." want to know about the American Revolution. I mean, many of my colleagues disdain that. The Patriot was full of errors. The Patriot is wrong. But the Patriot also engages people's interests, and they can go read the books that tell them why there were errors. And, and I'm, I'm really concerned about that. And we, I believe, as a scholarly community, should really be committed to communication and really be committed to reaching out to a wider audience. At the same time, I, I say, look, I, I went to graduate school in the in the 70s. I mean, there was um, French medieval beach reads. You know, Natalie Davis does, does The Return of Martin Gare, which turns into a film, which actually was a great Civil War film with Jodie Foster and uh, and, and Richard Gere, uh, Summersby. So we, we, we you know, I, I had dreams and possibilities, and I would like to see more of my colleagues engaged in that, museum studies, um, public history programs. Um, and with, by the way, the Lincoln Bicentennial, we're, we're on committees trying to say, how can we get the public fired up and people in their everyday lives really interested in the past and engaged in the past? At the same time, you know, we are engaged in very different questions for the Bicentennial of Lincoln than we were for the Centennial. What What was his his legacy for African Americans. What was the engagement of the Civil War in terms of transforming women's lives, black as well as white? So mm-hmm. there's always a way of updating this, I think. And I, my, I have a website now because I do children's books and you go and... www.katherineclinton.com There you go. And it's uh, it's it's something that you, you, you're you in cyberspace. You're in a new realm. You You want to be... And I would like to say, love talking on the radio because radio sales, that is your book sales following radios, bigger than Amazon. I learned that on a recent book tour. So we love our radio listeners because people who listen to book shows are people who buy books. They're so interested. Should I give them more titles? No, No, just say that. Go buy uh, wonderful new books in Civil War history. Harriet Tubman, The Road to Freedom. Yes, and also Edward Ayers, uh, What Caused the Civil War, coming out soon by a good friend of ours. So we have, you know, I really think if people just go online. You mentioned, though, you learn, I was saying learning from children. I have a series with Oxford University Press, Viewpoints on American Culture. I have a new book coming out called Latina Legacies. Of course, it's in my series. I call it my book, but I'm the grandmother. The true wonderful um, mothers of this are um, uh Vicki Ruiz, the upcoming president of the Organization of American Historians, and, and Virginia Corral. And they've done this wonderful anthology with 15 Latina women who give us insight into the past, engaging, wonderful. Now, my two sons came in. They saw this book on the table, Latina Legacies. They went, Mom, what are you doing? I said, what? I'm doing a book on Latinas. They said, oh, you're kidding. And I didn't understand their discomfort, but here's what we're talking about in terms of popular culture versus go onto the Internet, type in Latina. Porn sites come pouring out. This term to my son, who's, you know, your average American teenager, here's the term Latina. And he is 
thinking, what's his mother getting involved in? And I, of course, as a scholar sitting in the academy, think, of course, I'm thinking about the, uh, one of the fastest growing populations, one of the most important ethnic groups, one of the histories that we really need to explore and expand on. But I'm, I'm saying the two clashing coming together make Latina legacies even more important. And I know that when I convey this story to my, my editors, they, they know these stories. I mean, they are fighting in the trenches. They're on the campuses, but they're also out in the public and they're saying, we need to reclaim this amazing heritage of women who were ranchers, the lieutenant nun, women who were, were scholars, women who were artists, women who were, who were organizing the farm workers. And this is the Latina legacy. So, I mean, how can I not be excited about uh, bringing these kind of topics, I think, to the fore? Yeah, and that seems to be a theme throughout all of your work, in some ways reclaiming the histories of women that have been either shrouded in myth or ignored or you know, otherwise just silenced in some way. Right. I mean, the past is always waiting for us and we'll always have new surprises. I mean, people think the past is dead, but it's this living thing. And history is is our way, I think, of asking questions that will shed new light, not just on the present, but in future. You know, so my grandchildren aren't going to see that grandma did a book on Latinas and giggle. They're going to be thinking how wonderful it was uh, that I was working on this noble project of of looking at our American past as so rich and multifaceted, um, so incredibly um, heterogeneous, which it always was. This new book in New York history tells us that the island, the first island of Manhattan, was just a little thriving international community, and it still is, and we need to reclaim that 17th century past. So that's why I love going back in time and finding all these, you know, really interesting, I think, uh, detours. But, um, but I do try and keep to subjects that I hope people will be engaged in. And so when I say I'm doing a book on William Carney and someone says who, maybe in the next generation, that won't, that won't happen. Well, thank you, Dr. Clinton. I think this is probably a good place to, to end today. Just for today, and thank you, Dr. Taylor. Uh, of our program. 
We're going to be winding down uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast for today. We'd like to remind our listeners that uh, you can have access to this program by going to the Pan-African Radio Network. Uh, that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash uh, Pan-African Journal. Uh, that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And, uh, of course, um, you can have access uh, not only to this program, but well over 1,100 other archive editions of uh, the Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, we're going to be uh, closing out uh, our program today uh, with the music of Aretha Franklin. Uh, this is a audio documentary on uh, a tour of the Netherlands in 1968. Uh, Aretha Franklin, of course, uh, one of the legendary uh, cultural figures, uh, not only in U.S. history, but uh, in world history. And she, of course, uh, in 1968, did a tour of Europe uh, that uh, landed her in the Netherlands and Paris, Sweden, as well as other countries. And um, fortunately, uh, those uh, recordings were uh, taped. And, uh, of course, uh, interviews uh, were done during the course uh, of her travels in Europe. And uh, we're going to share some of that uh, as we close out uh, our program uh, for today. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week. The public is longing to see you. Well, I wasn't in Rotterdam. Very, very good. Yes? Much better than I expected. Oh, yes. What did you expect? I wasn't sure. <laughs> it's your uh, first trip outside the USA? That's right. And what do you expect on the continent? Um, I'm not exactly sure, but I'm looking forward to good days. Well, you're in Seoul City now, Amsterdam. Very good. That's uh, our Seoul City. Well, it started uh, a long time ago for you. Yeah. Now you have had five or six million sellers? Uh, five. And five, five singles. And three albums. Three? Three albums, but only one million sellers. The album. The second one, not yet, but... Uh, no. I think... We hope. Big. brought you, you over? Is King Curtis? Uh, no. Just my husband and my agent. And
sister and myself. You were from uh, Detroit? That's right. How was your uh, homecoming concert? Tell me something about it. Extraordinary. Yes? There were about 13,000 people there. And uh, it was just too fantastic. Three years ago, and by then, I mean, here in Holland, which is quite unique, I think. I mean, someone brought him from America. And, uh, well, you know, gave a real good kick. But three years ago, it wasn't that swinging for you, was it? No, no. All of this has happened in the last year. And how, I mean, what was the break, actually? Where? Atlantic Records, I think. <laughs> I'll be singing like Jimmy Durant. <laughs> Are you nervous? What's the number you start with? Is that your opening number? Mm. And the, the showstopper, the, the, the finale? What's oh, that? I don't know about that, but that's, that's not the opener. Definitely. Yeah. We changed. We did use something else up in Rotterdam, but we decided to... You always let now hear A for a party. A for A for play, okay? Play A for
Well, so brothers and so sisters, you know her from Chain to Fool, Reback, since you've begun. Here she is, the queen of the rhythm and blues, Arena Franklin. There she is, yes. En nu gaat u allemaal zitten. Allemaal zitten, anders gaat de show niet door. U gaat nu allemaal zitten. Anders, u gaat nu zitten. Oké? Okay? Nu gaat u zitten en u staat niet meer op. Ik heb het vriendelijk gevraagd, het kan niet. U gaat nu zitten, anders gaan we niet door. Oké, okay? het is dus aan u. Ladies and gentlemen, here she is again, Miss Rita Franklin.
Don't 